And tonight we are doing one of our historical inquiries, something that the host of this program particularly enjoys. Uh, we have with us tonight three professors of history who specialize in the study of uh, great empires that rose and inevitably all empires apparently up to now seem finally uh, to fail, to fall and to fail. My guests are Brian Lavelle, who's been here a number of times before. He is professor, and these days as well, chairman of the Classics Department at Loyola University, and he specializes in ancient Greece and Rome. Michael Khodakovsky is professor of history at Loyola University and specializes in the study of Russian history and has written considerably on the rise of the Russian Empire, that is the Tsarist Empire, and for that matter, the uh, Soviet Empire that persisted beyond. Cornell Fleischer is professor of history at the University of Chicago, and he specializes in the Ottoman Empire. We'll look at some of those histories uh, and ask what they have in common, what is distinctive about them. But gentlemen, even before that, I can't resist this. Uh, how accurate or in inaccurate is history? I heard a great uh, essay in inaccurate history just this very day on, uh, on the news, on a cable station. The Pilgrim Baptist Church was burning in Chicago. They went to it, and the man commenting on it from New York or Atlanta, wherever, said, he had something like this in his notes, he said, the church is located uh, at the corner of Adler and Sullivan, uh, and it's and one distinctive thing about the church is Tommy Dorsey used to play there. <laughs> uh, of course, it isn't at Adler and Sullivan. They were the architects who designed the original synagogue that later became the, uh, uh, the Pilgrim Baptist Church. And the Tommy Dorsey who used to play there was not Tommy Dorsey the trombonist, but Thomas A. Dorsey, more or less the father of American gospel music. Alles hat Salem wie is the great injunction. Uh, tell everything the way it really happened, the way it really was. Can we, with regard to the history of Greece and Rome, for example, that's the greatest distance away, can we really trust our sources? Well, Milt, that's a, the, the question that's on the minds of most ancient historians, I think most historians who deal with literary texts, that um, we want to know what forces influenced uh, the historians as they wrote. It's very clear that pronounced influences affected the transmission of history and then filtered through them who had their own interests. Tacitus said about Roman emperors uh, looking backward that uh, you couldn't get any accurate information about them because those that wrote about them during the time of their reigns wrote to flatter them and those that wrote afterward wrote only to um, excoriate and uh, slander them. And so. some of them turned out to be essentially gossip columnists who wanted to tell the worst uh, they, and most shocking story they possibly could. That's true of, if not of Tacitus, it's true of Suetonius, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, Suetonius had uh, great interest, uh, he said, I think, in moral history. But in fact, he was interested, I think, more in the lurid and salacious elements. Yeah. And the, the highlight of his uh, book on the Twelve Emperors is Nero killing his mother. That's right. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, it's a fascinating <laughs> tale. It leaves a vivid image. But uh, somehow between and from all of that, one needs to put together an historical account of what Rome actually was as uh, an imperial system, how it rose and why it came apart. Mm -hmm. And the same question necessarily confronts the historian who studies the Ottoman Empire or who studies the, the Russian Empire. Is it fair? Let's turn to the Russian first rather than the Roman. Is it fail, uh, fair, Michael Khodorkovsky, to speak of uh, imperial Russia indeed as imperial, as an empire? Uh, yes, certainly. Uh, I think it's quite fair. But if I could go back to your question, 
I, w I think I would take the middle ground. I think it's important, and I think all historians realize it these days, uh, to question the sources, right, that we use to construct mm -hmm. history. But at the same time, we shouldn't, you know, the throw, throw the baby with the water. Uh, as some, actually, there is a tendency to do that, too. Um, so the fact that history is constructed doesn't mean that it's entirely wrong. It's just we need to uh, be able to look into, you know, new aspects of it, what we know, uh, you know, we'll learn more about it and so on. Do you know the, the maxim put forward, I don't know exactly when, but in the 20th century by uh, Benedetto Croce, mm -hmm. the Italian uh, philosopher of history he was as much as anything else. And he says quite simply, all history is modern history, meaning we see the past through the glasses of the present, so to speak, and through the, the sensitivities, the problems, the, uh, uh, the culture of the present. To a certain extent, yes, I, I think. But, you know, I think a good historian is the one who can actually uh, put himself or herself in the time that he or she studies. And there's no question that the, the modern lens distorts our vision because we respond to the issues and the culture in which we live and so on. But nonetheless, I think that you know, a good historian can still uh, do a good deal of, of good history. Well, I think m many of our listeners know something about the <laughs> Roman Empire, and we'll turn to that in a while. But let's first talk about Russia and about the Ottomans. Indeed, let us go directly to Cornell Fleischer to talk about the Ottoman Empire to begin with. Um, how do we date it? What, the traditional dating is uh, requires that one begin in 1453 when uh, the Ottoman forces conquered Constantinople, uh, May 29th, actually. And uh, that's the way Gibbon dates the fall or the end of the Roman Empire. Uh, yes, indeed, and uh, perhaps fallaciously so, because the, uh, the Ottomans and indeed many of their uh, many of their observers and uh, partners in both economy and uh, and politics in the 15th and 16th centuries uh, actually believed that they were the heirs to the Roman imperial dignity uh, by virtue of not only by virtue of, of conquest of the imperial city of Constantinople uh, but also by virtue of their system and their implementation of an uh, of empire. Who are the who are the Ottomans? We often translate that, that that as the Turks, but that's not the way to do it, is it? Uh, no, it's not. It's not, in fact, uh, appropriately an ethnic term. Certainly, in the 15th and 16th centuries, uh, it's simply. Uh, Osmanlı was the original term. It simply meant an, a follower of the House of Osman. Uh, and are the are the Osmans invaders, or have they been there for quite some time? No, like uh, many other principalities, some of them Muslim, some of them Christian, uh, some of them Latin Christian, some of them Orthodox Christian. They've all been there for quite some time, uh, in what had been the Eastern Roman Empire or the Byzantine Empire, as it as it is latterly known. Uh, and these were territories, both in what is now Anatolia and in the Balkans, that were largely run by a variety of, uh, of warlord states, uh, sometimes presided over by an imperial power, uh, or usually um, uh, presided over by an imperial power that was located in Constantinople, but effectively not necessarily so. The big, the big shift, of course, is a shift to uh, Muslims 
into Muslim domination rather than Christian at the time of the fall of Constantinople. At the time of the fall of Constantinople, that seemed to be a very large shift in the eyes of Latin, that is, Western Christian observers. Mm -hmm. It was not such a very big shift in the eyes of people looking from the Balkans or from Anatolia. Well, uh, what happened? Indeed, the Ottoman Emperor, uh, Mehmet, uh, Sultan Mehmet the Conqueror, uh, was viewed by many of his new Orthodox subjects as the legitimate protector of the Orthodox Church and protector of Christianity. And what happens from there on? They do spread and, uh, and expand their power, do they not? Oh, they do very much indeed, so that by the middle to latter part of the 16th century, the Ottoman Empire extends from uh, the plains of Hungary to the borders of Iran, going uh, west to east, and uh, from the Crimea to the Horn of Africa, going uh, north to south. We asked, I just asked, what, where does it begin? Does it really persist? Can one say it lasts until the defeat of the of the Turks in World War One? Uh, well, you say the Turks, and you use the term that well, you I, uh, just mind. a moment ago, ago mentioned I should, I should uh, was perhaps not the most oh, appropriate the seat, one. The in, seat in, was in the seat of the Ottoman Empire was what is now modern Turkey, surely. Uh, yes, the empire did last as idea and as reality until 1923, 1924, uh, not even a century ago, uh, and remained and has remained, in fact, a powerful reality as well as notion uh, in the Balkans, in the largely, although not exclusively, Islamic Middle East. Uh, well into the late 20th century. Now, Michael Kordakovsky, you have studied uh, the Russian Empire, but the Russian and the Ottoman Empires uh, bordered one another and were often in some kind of conflict. How would you characterize what was somehow the central theme or the defining quality of the Ottoman Empire? Defining quality of the... It depends on the time, probably. Sure. <clears throat> until... Um, Probably until the late 16th century, it's safely to say, safe to say that the Russians borrowed a great deal from the Ottomans. The Ottomans were revered, respected. This was one of the most powerful empires uh, on the European horizon. And there are several specific institutions that we know that the Russians uh, borrowed from the Ottomans. <clears throat> For example, the, the Janissary, Janissary Corps, as, as they are mm. known in the West, Janichari, or Janissaries. Uh, the these, are these are fighters... Uh, taken sometimes as slaves, but certainly captured from other nations, n rather than being uh, native to the capital city, say. Well, I will defer to Cornell on this, but I think they were of mixed origins. They were natives as well. The Janissaries were of... Is that right? Uh, uh, they, they were not necessarily... Uh, only taken from the s as slaves from Christian lands. They were ostensibly <laughs> servile, but uh, servile might include people who were born Muslim or born Christian, uh, mm. but people who became servile in the sense of serving the Tsar or serving the Sultan mm -hmm. uh, and being essentially his property. But uh, to continue on the Russian-Ottoman relations, by the 18th century, after Russia had been westernized and reformed by Peter the Great and Catherine the Great, uh, by the late 18th century, the Ottomans were, of course, as they were known in Europe, the sick man of Europe, right? Uh, the Ottoman was, Empire was in decline, and I believe 
six or seven wars were fought between the Ottomans and Russians in the 18th century alone, and all of them were lost, with the exception of one in 1711. Actually. So that Russian imperial control extends over portions that, <coughs> of the former, of the Ottoman Empire, as it begins to uh, give up piece by piece. In certain areas, uh, uh, this, for example, let's take the North Caucasus, and I can speak about it since I'm writing a book on the history of the North Caucasus now. Um, uh, the Russians demanded, uh, uh, insisted in the 19th century that they have the right to expand in the North Caucasus, particularly the Black Sea coast, the Northwest Caucasus, because the Ottomans um, surrendered the control of the North Caucasus to the Russians. This is in, in what territory by their modern national names? Uh, this will be the territory of Russian region of Krasnodar. Uh, that's the the uh, the north uh, north uh, what is it north east coast of the Black Sea, mm -hmm. and part of the Abkhaz Republic where the war civil war was taking place. Abkhazia related today, to yes. Abkhazia, right? Related to events in Georgia and so on. Uh, and uh, that that's the basic region known as Circassians. You've mm -hmm. probably heard of Circassians, and so. Uh, well, the, in the reality, uh, the Ottomans never controlled that region. They never had any suzerainty over that region. Uh, they had trade relations with it. They uh, bought slaves from that region, but they never controlled it. So uh, that region, for example, was never under Ottoman auspices. Uh, in, uh, for example, the northwest coast of the Black Sea, that would be true when the Russian Empire expanded it, uh, encroached on the former Ottoman territories, Crimea, but Crimea, again, was not exactly a uh, part of the Ottoman Empire. It was a vassal state of the Ottoman Empire. So actually, there is no, <clears throat> there's very little, let's say, direct uh, wrestling of the land uh, by the Russian Empire from the Ottomans. In the former Yugoslavia, in modern time, uh, we've had some rather dreadful uh, conflicts, which have managed to kill quite a number of people, and even... Uh, consisted of some genocidal undertakings, particularly in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Uh, the Serbs, the Croatians, the Bosnian Muslims, the Bosnian Serbs, and yet others in other outlying areas of the former Yugoslavia were at each other's throats. Um, and they still are, for that matter, in yet other parts uh, of the former Yugoslavia. Bosnia-Herzegovina is particularly fascinating in that it had a religiously mixed population, though it was ethnically, ethnically probably a single population. But there's strong conflict between uh, the Serbs of, uh, of Orthodox Eastern religion, or of Eastern Orthodox religion, and the uh, Bosnians of Muslim religion. Uh, that's what a good deal of that conflict was about. That's a consequence of the Ottoman extension that far west, is it not, historically? It is, and uh, I think what you point to, Milt, is uh, actually one of the issues that I hope to be able to raise during this program. Uh, raise it now, please. That is that uh, although we are supposed to be talking about empires, empire is a category of political and social organization uh, that for much of the course of human history uh, represented an ideal uh, and was recognized as such. 
Uh, it is really only in the 20th century, uh, since the First World War, the dismantling of the Austro-Hungarian and, uh, and Ottoman empires, uh, latterly, in the latter part of the 20th century, we can perhaps talk about the Soviet Empire, uh, but it is, it, it is a category that we no longer, in the latter, 20th, uh, latter part of the 20th century or uh, early 21st century, recognize as legitimate and licit, and yet it was one that was normal for a very large part of the world for much of human history. I found a, a very interesting sort of definition and historical account of uh, the history of empire. This is from a little um, publication known as the Encyclopedia Britannica. And let me read it to you. It's rather lengthy, but that is, it's you know, a long paragraph. But I think it contains a great deal. Do you agree with what it asserts? Because they are composed of peoples of different cultures and ethnic backgrounds, all empires are ultimately held together by coercion and the threat of forcible reconquest. Imposing their rule on diverse political structures, they are characterized by the centralization of power and the absence of effective representation of their component parts. Although force is thus the primary instrument of imperial rule, it is also true that history records many cases of multi-ethnic empires that were governed peaceably for considerable periods and were often quite successful in maintaining order within their boundaries. The history of the ancient world is the history of great empires, Egypt, China, Persia, and Imperial Rome, whose autocratic regimes provided relatively stable government for many subject peoples in immense territories over many centuries. Based on military force and religious belief, the ancient despotisms were legitimized also by their achievements in building great bureaucratic and legal structures, in developing vast irrigation and road systems, and in providing the conditions for the support of high civilizations, enhancing and transcending all other political structures in their sphere, they could claim to function as effective schemes of universal order. I turn at last uh, back to Brian Lavelle. Does that sound as if it fits the Ottoman or the Russian empires uh, less well than it fits your place, namely, for the moment, the Roman Empire. Well, I'm going to, again, defer to my colleagues for those two empires, but I think it does fit pretty well uh, what we know about the Roman Empire. Um, it sounds ever so uh, halcyon to, uh, to, be, to be in one of these empires when I think uh, while, on the one hand, uh, we, there is an upside, there certainly is a downside, and what we seem to forget in this glow of... Um, sort of civilization, you know, quote unquote, is the the real um, wearing down of populations and the exploitation of them. I think that's what empires do, is were, dominate and were exploit. Ordinary folk, particularly in the more colonial portions mm -hmm. of the empire, uh, were ordinary folk essentially repressed and committed to or forced into uh, lives that were nasty, brutish, and short in the Ottoman Empire, the Russian Empire, and the Roman Empire. Uh, yeah, I think that the free populations of the empire, empires had had, a, or the Roman Empire had a better time of of it. Certainly. But what do you mean by the free population? Well, I mean we've got a great division between servile and and free, uh, free peasants especially in the east and other parts of the empire. But 
We notice in, in the, the latter part of the Roman Empire that there's a great restedness by those who are formerly free in the Greek East, the Greek-speaking Eastern Mediterranean, who have nothing but nostalgia to, look, uh, to, to, to cling to, looking back at their freedoms of about 600 years before. Uh, they wish they were free again, but the, the kinds of things that, that uh, are produced by that civilization under Roman auspices seem to show a kind of demoralization and a, and a, um, a pointlessness in the way that they, they view the, their lives. So. Well, isn't it true that all of the, the free empires under consideration tonight, and empires generally, in, uh, when empires still were achieved by military conquest and by military garrisoning, mm -hmm and all that followed thereupon. Isn't it true that always they ultimately collapse because of restive natives on the periphery? Yeah, I mean, it was certainly the, the, uh, the common belief about the Roman Empire is that it succumbed to uh, external pressures primarily, but not helped at all by internal decay yeah. that allowed for the, the collapse. So. Well, that's the other great historical question. Do you get internal decay because the elites of all such empires essentially grow degenerate? Did they do so in Imperial Russia or in the Ottoman world? Well, I, I, <laughs> there's so many questions <laughs> flying at once. Well, I told well, you this is not a seminar, it's just a radio program. Well, that's, that's fine. Um, I think empire is a very complex organism by mm -hmm. definition. Uh, and so I think the, the, some of the problems I have with the description that you read uh, is that it sort of assumes that all of them are held by force and some of them only uh, some of them is an exception by peace while in fact the both both are always at work in the initial stage of expansion and conquest of course there's more reliance on force but later in terms of governance and organizing the the territories and the the people's bureaucratic structures uh, there are all kind of mechanisms at work here and they are not necessarily uh, uh, imply force. Is one of those I would, I would add a great deal of willing and happy participation. Yes. Is, is one of those mechanisms, in fact, the promise of potential mobility, that you can rise from a surf far away from the capital and ultimately improve your lot considerably? Yes. For, for many people, it's potential mobility. Remember that um, the expansion, I would dare uh, make this uh, uh, very big generalization here, mm -hmm. and I will say that the expansion of any empire uh, is premised on collaboration of various uh, peoples mm -hmm. uh, who later fi find themselves under the uh, uh, control of this empire. Without it, it couldn't expand, and we don't have time to elaborate, but I think mm -hmm. it's important to understand that the empires always use, uh, you know, divide and rule, the typical British dictum, they always used use uh, consciously different peoples in order to expand and assert their control, or uh, simply by its very nature, various people who were oppressed by the uh, within the existing uh, state structure or non-state structure in their territories find the new power as a liberator. I mean, we have hundreds of uh, interestingly, uh, that's just to take one particular corner of history <coughs> and to deal with yet another empire, uh, the sort of Moorish Empire that ruled at least half of Spain and all of North Africa for a number of centuries. Uh, they got collaborators in Spain from the Jews who were quite considerably oppressed under uh, Christian domination, uh, were barely tolerated, and then uh, became, then flourished under Muslim Moorish uh, 
uh, uh, favoritism, I suppose, and filled the professions and ultimately had significant roles in the court life and were the physicians and the bankers and the poets, not uniquely so, but, uh, but Jews of that period uh, working in and speaking in and writing in Arabic played a very, very large role in that civilization, only then to be heavily stomped upon once the expulsion of the Moors took place and uh, Isabel and Ferdinand consolidated Christian rule of Spain once again. And that's when indeed the Jews were now forced to convert to Catholicism or to be killed or at least get out of town. Or to, to go east to the, the Ottoman Empire. Right. Well, this is one of the, uh, what you touch upon is, is really, I think, a fundamental issue about empire that gets missed when we talk about its, the coercive dimensions, for example, mm -hmm. of, of the formation of empire. And one of the primary, po primary points about empire is that ethnicity, for example, uh, takes a secondary or tertiary place to either citizenship or cultural participation uh, in the larger enterprise. And so the, to describe, for example, Spain between uh, the 8th and the 15th centuries, the time of the expulsion, as, uh, as Moorish, uh, sorry, with all due respect, Milt. Uh, I was searching for the proper term. What should we call it? Uh, well, it was uh, large sections of the Iberian Peninsula were run by people who were communally Muslim, uh, but who were ethnically Berbers or Slavs mm -hmm. or uh, Northern Europeans of one sort or another, or Arabs. Uh, and it, I don't wish to say that one's ethnicity played no role in people's self-definition, but it played very much a, a secondary or tertiary mm -hmm. role uh, in that. And what was rather a more significant determinant of one's uh, position and possibilities was whether you were able to participate in the dominant and prestigious language of culture and science. Which, which was Arabic. Uh, which was Arabic, and you know we had bishops of Toledo who were complaining that all the smart boys and girls, but largely boys at that point, were going off to learn Arabic because that's where the action mm -hmm. was. It wasn't in Latin. Yeah, right? fascinating. And, uh, and what's interesting, I think, yeah. to, to follow up, that it, uh, it's very important to realize the matter of perceptions because I think the reason you refer to it Moorish is because it was seen as such as an Arab or Moorish by the yeah. Christians, by the outsiders, right? They did not know who was a Berber and who was a uh, yeah. Slav. In, so in El Cid, so which the is the great narrative of those wars, uh, they are called the Moors. Yes. Right. Yeah. Or the Saracens. Right, but in the, in the 15th and 16th centuries, just by way of example, um, even European observers began to distinguish between, for example, Moro and Turco. Okay, a Moro, a Moor, was someone from North Africa. These yeah. were a rather more familiar sort of Muslim, people who had actually been on Iberian soil and occasionally came ashore on Italy and the like. And the the Turks, uh, that is, Ottoman subjects who often as not were had nothing to do with Turkish ethnicity, 
who were by by origin Greeks or Slavs or one thing or another, uh, but came from Ottoman lands. And so these ethnonyms that we use with such uh, facility based on, on 16th century They oversimplify usage, tremendously. Uh, uh, yes, uh, they, 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 they cover a host mm -hmm. of distinctions that were in fact made by contemporaries. Peoples are all mixed up, they almost always are. Mm -hmm. Wherever you look in the world, at whatever historical point. Empire, I turn back to Brian, to Brian Lavelle, because you're the ancient historian. An empire begins uh, in very ancient times. What, what would we call the first empire? The Babylonian, the Sumerian? Oh, I guess so. Uh, that seems to be the oldest we know of. Um, but they do spread around from their cities to adjoining lands and impose rule, don't they? That seems to be the sine qua non. So that's uh, the beginning of empire. Expansion and domination of those outside of your own, uh, I don't know, political sphere. And then the first that really captures a lot of territory and holds on for quite a while is what we designate as the Egyptian Empire, would you say? Yes, uh, facilitated, of course, by the Nile um, and boundaries. But it is bounded, uh, although there is expansion into, into what, what's modern uh, Palestine, Syria, mm -hmm. uh, those areas there. Um, I think the, the empire, though, that holds the greatest uh, or has the greatest hold on our imagination still today, uh, and I'm, I'm not saying this because and I'm showing favoritism to my own subject, but I think it's the Roman Empire. Uh, because uh, for, for, for some reason it captures the imagination both because of its colossal size but I think also because it's um, so embracing of uh, Western Europe and, and but, uh, but you're leaving out the prior one mm. namely the Greeks and particularly the Athenian Empire as it spread around and then a few centuries later Alexandros of Macedon that's right in the first case the the uh, uh, the uh, Athenian Empire has a great deal of uh, a, a great many lessons I think to teach us because it's it's a democratic empire mm -hmm. um, which uh, uh, exploits uh, its uh, components uh, for uh, its democratic um, constituents the Alexandrian Empire uh, was very very fragile and uh, broke up uh, immediately after the death of Alexander. Yeah, was, that army raged around yeah. uh, Persia and as far as the Hindu Kush or something. Oh, yes. And killed a lot of people. And, and killed a lot of people. But did they ever establish something like an imperial system, bureaucratized and, well, and operative? Well, in the successor kingdoms, bureau bureaucracies were established. Yeah. Uh, there was a top-down political system, and it worked with coercion. Well, they broke it up into three parts. Yeah, pr primarily parts. three parts. That's what it resolved into. Yeah. And in fact, it's it's that which is the real, I think, contribution of Alexander. To... And I, uh, here, I would just like to interject, uh, returning to Michael's uh, point of a couple of moments ago. Uh, that is the perception of participants, uh, the inhabitants, uh, as well as the creators of in, an empire. And the Alexandrian example, uh, as well as the Roman one, uh, were tremendously powerful in the Middle Ages in Western Europe and in Islamic lands. Uh, and powerful in what sense? Uh, powerful in the sense that for all that we might, for example, look at the Alexandrian order and say, well, yes, it fell apart, and you know, his generals had to, he didn't have any progeny, and his generals had to sort of take it over, and they did for two or three hundred years, and 
various and sundry areas, uh, it didn't really work, and it was very, very coercive. This was a model of empire as universal imperium, mm -hmm. uh, as universal order, which carried with it a set of cultural and ethical and, and uh, normative values uh, that seemed to embrace the world, that was tremendously appealing to a medieval world yeah. imbued with mm. either Christianity or Judaism or Islam. And in Anatolia and elsewhere, they still tell stories about <coughs> Iskander, don't they? Uh, indeed, they do. And uh, Alexander the Two-Horned uh, mm -hmm. is an, uh, is a Quranic figure, uh, mm -hmm. but also more importantly, is a figure of romance common to uh, Christian, Jewish, and yeah. Muslim medieval literature. And they still call the uh, the dominant figure in the Russian imperial structure the Tsar, which is to say they called him Caesar. Caesar. Well, what is very interesting, I think, what Cornell was saying, <clears throat> because in Russia we find a model different, different model, and that is the Roman Empire. The Russian mm -hmm. Empire from late 16th century was consciously modeled on the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe it's good to introduce at this point those two basic sort of models of the empires that we have. One is was direct rule, as we know it, and one was indirect rule. Direct rule empire will be a Roman Empire, right, trying to include everyone assimilate people, turn yeah. them into... And in all the provinces, you send proconsuls out to run the place. Right. Yeah. And um, later, the French, for example, have the same model as French. Everyone could become theoretically a French citizen. Uh, of course, recent events in Paris prove that uh, theory and practice are two mm -hmm. different things, obviously. Um, and then uh, indirect model, which is more Athenian model, that is basically emanating from the democratically-based societies, mm -hmm. Uh, and the British, of course, empire will be the perfect example of that. So what, where Russian empire fits into this is clearly trying to imitate the Roman empire, centralized, integrating, assimilating people, expanding, and so on. We are uh, due for some commercials. This is one of those nights in the post-Christmas lull when we're low on commercials, but we'll take them all in one batch right now and then return, and, we got, and we're going to work our way backwards. Oh, We've right. made reference to the Roman Empire, but we haven't really yet examined it. It's a fabulous story, Hurrah. and we will touch some of its highlights uh, directly after we pause for this. Our guests tonight, to quickly reintroduce them, are Cornell Fleischer, who is professor of history at the University of Chicago and specializes in the study of the Ottoman Empire and Islamic history more generally, Michael Khodarkovsky, who is professor of history at Loyola, and specializes in early modern and imperial Russian history, and Brian Lavelle, who is professor and chairman these days of the Department of Classics at Loyola, and specializes in ancient Greece and Rome. And let us go to ancient Rome. By the way, uh, did Romulus, Romulus and Remus really start the whole thing going? Well, that's the story. That, uh, it sure is. Romulus and Remus... Uh, it's a wonderful myth. What is it? What's the functionality of that myth? What does it do for us? Well, it's tell it, the myth first. Well, uh, Romulus and Remus were were brothers who were um, uh, partly divine. Uh, they were um, uh, had had a wondrous uh, birth, and uh, of course were threatened as as babies. Uh, but uh, due to a miracle, they were found uh, floating down the river Tiber, were plucked up and and taken care of by uh, a lady whose name actually means wolf. Um, uh, after having been suckled by a wolf, uh, 
they then grew to manhood and uh, leaving their mother and father, shepherds, they came to the side of Rome and decided they would find, found a city. Uh, exactly where that city would be was uh, in dispute. Uh, Remus wanted to find it, the two brothers, Romulus and Remus, Remus wanted to find it, uh, found it on the Aventine Hill. Uh, Romulus uh, thought the better site was the Palatine, and uh, Romulus won, uh, and he actually uh, committed a, a terrible crime in doing that, one might say, but also showed the resolve of the Romans, because when he was plowing the furrow for the wall of the city, Remus, whose nose was quite out of joint, having um, lost uh, the bet as to which site would be better, and was actually a uh, flight of birds showed that the Palatine was the better site, um, he decided that he would jump over the furrow, and he said, look how easily your walls are breached. Romulus, of course, said, well, guess what? Um, I'm going to kill you, and killed him, and said, thus will happen to any who try to breach the walls of Rome. And so Rome was founded in the bloodshed of brothers, fraternal bloodshed. Um, and from that humble beginning in 753 B.C., that's the tr traditional date, B.C.E., but the other, the other important event is the overthrow of the Etruscan kings. Yeah, that occurred at the end of the 6th century, and from that point, uh, Rome was governed not by kings but by consuls who were elected. And were supposedly a republic. And was supposed, well, it was a republic in fact. Mm -hmm. um, uh, men were elected by, by uh, tribal assemblies and uh, s governed only for a certain amount of time and then were replaced by others. By the time of the fall of the republic, mm -hmm. which uh, might be... Would you take it with the assassination of Caesar, or would you take it with the dominance of C the emergence of Caesar? I think the Republic actually ends when Augustus proclaimed, or it, it has himself, Octavian has himself uh, proclaimed Augustus. Yeah. That's really the end. But he's still uh, pretty much into pares. He's still. Oh yes. It's still by fiction, by working fiction, it's right. still a democracy. That's right. He he ensured his power by gathering to himself the traditional uh, means no. for uh, expression of power, rather than creating something like. Uh, a dictatorship or a but even as a republic is already spreading all over its, its corner of the world oh yeah to north africa and yeah. somewhat westward and even into spain uh, before yeah. the augustan period why and how what's the working uh, dynamic that agitates these people and drives them forward well it seems to be that that rome founded by a bunch of, of misfits uh were constantly fighting their neighbors and so developed this 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 uh, culture of um, conquest and ex exploitation, and then by degrees expanded from the side of Rome, about the mm -hmm. midpoint in the boot that is Italy, mm -hmm. uh, on both sides, north and south, until they dominated the peninsula over oh, about the end of the third century. The interaction between myth, century. between myth and events is always fascinating. Mm. Uh, their founding myth, the, one of them is the Romulus and Remus mm -hmm, story, mm -hmm. but the other, of course, is given by Virgil and the Aeneid. Right. And it is that Rome is really the Trojans who have been knocked off by the Achaean Greeks uh, in, uh, in the Iliad. They get on a boat, and uh, Aeneas does, yes. and they find a new home on those hills. That's right, exactly. And, and so... Uh, why did the Romans... Why was that important to the Romans, that myth? Well, I, I think it's because uh, they could, you know, tie in certainly to something that was very potent, especially when they came into contact with the Greeks, and that's the, uh, mm -hmm. a, a heritage. Or, we're as Greek as you are. Uh, that's right. Uh, more, more, and we're better than, than you are Greek as, as Greeks. You're weak, we're strong. Look at yeah. this. Um, and so they could have their, uh, 
you know, their, their nobility ensured by tying it to those who were the famous antagonists of the, of the Achaean kings in the Iliad. Um, and also, uh, they, they were able, I think, to account for their connection. There's a very real connection that the, that the Romans had with the Etruscans, who were not uh, Italian and seemed to have come from somewhere uh, scholars think like Asia Minor, where mm -hmm. Troy was, and the whole line of descent of the myth involving. So Virgil may, may have had it right. Uh, who's to say? Who's to say? Mm. But the curious thing about Rome is that it, wor it runs for an awfully long time. Right. It falls. It's no longer a, an extant and dominant civilization up until the fall of Constantinople, but it lasts really until the fifth or sixth century A.D. before. It essentially collapses under internal disorder and the German uh, invasions. I would, I would guess. That's right. In in the in the fourth century, once for all, the uh, empire that stretched from Scotland in the west and north to Egypt and even parts of Iraq and the and the east and south uh, was divided into two: western and eastern. Mm -hmm. The western empire didn't survive the fifth century, at least officially. And um, the latest word on this, the latest uh, uh, book, scholarly books on it, have it that, in fact, uh, the 5th century witnessed the cataclysm that took something that could have remained viable and dealt it the, um, a death blow. Still, the long run is close to 1,000 years yeah, well, it is for the in, Roman Empire. Uh, it is uh, in, the, in ancient times up to that point. And then, of course, uh, the Eastern Empire um, survives. Yeah until the fall of Constantinople. Otherwise known as the Byzantine Empire. The Byzantine Empire. I mean, I guess that's debatable whether or not it actually fell in 1204. <coughs> yeah. But I was interested in hearing what Michael had to say about the connections between the Russian Empire and the Roman Empire. And I was going to ask what sort of um, important um, or significant alterations to that model occurred by filtration of the idea of Rome through the Byzantine notion of it or the Byzantine take on 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 what Rome was mm -hmm. uh, well I think that the sort of the Russian ideology was able to combine several ideologies uh, uh, it was a mixture of several uh, ideologies one of course was what we know as a third Rome right that Moscow became the third Rome after collapse of Rome the first Rome then of the uh, Constantinople as the second Rome and now Moscow, of course, inherited this this uh, power and, and tradition. Who pro who proclaims that? This is uh, well. It, it was the first we know it in the some obscure letter of some uh, monk from the city of Novgorod in, mm -hmm. in the um, <clears throat> early 16th century, and then. Uh, the whole idea is actually controversial among Russian historians. Some say this actually had never been articulated. But whether it's articulated or not, all empires, it seems to me, need what we can generally call some kind of manifest destiny. That is, some kind of ideology that allows them to expand and conquer and, uh, and rationalize. Well, what was the great driving Russian and, myth? And so, well, the Third theory. Rome, I think, is, was a very important that ideology. It. That is, yeah. the, the idea was that Moscow is a Third Rome, and the Fourth, as it said, and the Fourth shall never be. That mm -hmm. is, this is it. And uh, remember that de Gaulle, de Gaulle, speaking of the significance <coughs> of France, even in its uh, decline post-war, but under him, he says that the uh, France a en mission civilisatrice. Mm -hmm. France has a the civilizing mission. We are the protectors of uh, 
and the guarantors of civilization. Actually, he's borrowing that, I suppose, from Napoleon, uh, who had a similar sense that by bringing the revolution to all the rest of Europe, he was somehow advancing uh, and protecting European civilization. Aren't all of these empires essentially prone to self-justify uh, themselves by reference to their higher civilized standards, which they are bringing to the otherwise uh, unenlightened and unwashed out there in the larger world? I think that's, that is true, yes. Uh, in, in most of the cases, whether we look at China or the, the Ottomans... Would that have been true of the Ottomans or, as well? Well, I think that I would put the proposition uh, a bit differently, uh, which would be to say that uh, actually... Sort of jumping onto what Michael was saying a moment ago, uh, yes, Moscow is the third Rome, uh, or Russia in the 16th century is is the third Rome. Uh, but one ought not to forget that uh, Constantinople, the city, mm -hmm. even after it becomes Istanbul in 1453, remains the seat of empire, and it is in fact the same mm -hmm. empire uh, that is imagined to have. Uh, existed ideally from the beginning of time with Alexander and Rome and is to uh, preside over the end of time as well. In Does the, the same dynamic of empire operate in modern time? I'm going to throw you a particular challenge with regard to a particular figure and a particular bunch of madmen and, uh, and monsters, namely the Nazis. Uh, is the Nazi myth just a modern variant, a 20th century variant of the mission to civilize? Well, I think the Nazis chose what they wanted uh, for their own use and, and, and exploited um, rather than um, <coughs> took the, the, the I, I think, the driving force of the ideology, which is civilizational, and, and, and simply embraced it as something that they could use. Um, but, they, but they speak with contempt of lesser breeds every place except maybe for England and Scotland and so on. That is, the Anglo-Saxon peoples are racially superior and they have a great contempt, not merely for Jews, but for the Slavs. Uh, they see that as the slave race, and the point uh, of their Eastern uh, adventure is to kill an awful lot of Slavs to make living room mm -hmm. for Germans. Mm -hmm. That's rather different from all the empires we've talked about so far. Oh, yeah. Roman Empire is seems to be, or what we call the Roman Empire, it seems to be characterized by the possibilities of upward mobility from servile to free yeah. to higher. And, and a readiness to Romanize mm -hmm. the others rather than to kill them. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, you kill a lot of them in the wars of expansion. That's right. I, I think there's a, a, a great uh, desire to have People come over peacefully, but if they won't mm -hmm. obey, then they have to be made examples of for others. What I've just been tending towards is the question of whether the empires that we have had some contact with, which is to say the Soviet empire uh, and the Nazi empire, and uh, are there any others that figure in the 20th century? I don't know. Uh, but the, the question of whether the dynamic is different by the time you reach uh, the modern age. I raise that question even now as we are about to sneak away for some commercials and a quick newscast, and I hope we might turn to it directly after these words. In between the empires we've talked about and the empires of the 20th century, and I have in mind particularly the evil empires, the two of them, Nazism and, uh, the, and the Soviet empire, stands a great uh, 
uh, international construction, which undoubtedly hurt a lot of people, but which also left a model that is still closely held by former members of that empire. I mean, of course, the British Empire. Uh, there's no doubt that they did pursue a kind of civilizing mission. It doesn't necessarily mean their civilization was intrinsically better than the ones they supplanted, but all through Africa, you, we still get the paraphernalia and the detail of the British parliamentary system, for example, even down to the Whigs. Uh, and uh, India, of course, uh, modern India is a blend of old Indian tradition and many other cultures that fused, and the British overlay, which is taken very seriously. And who speaks English more richly and more dexterously than the Indian middle class? Uh, what do we make of these more recent empires, the British, and then onto the two uh, distinctive evil empires of the 20th century? How do we think about them in connection to uh, the imperial model that we've been employing so far? Well, I think we've not actually been employing a single imperial model, or I hope we have not been doing so. We need a number of models. Uh, there are. We've referred to a Roman model. We've referred to an Alexandrian model. Uh, I think that certainly with the advent of early modernity, uh, we need to think about the articulation of a number of, of uh, diametrically opposed possibilities. And one need only bring to mind uh, the rivalry of Spanish Habsburg and Ottoman powers in the beginning of the 16th century. Uh, when, on the one hand, uh, Ferdinand and Isabel, to whom you referred earlier, had taken over, uh, had conquered Granada, expelled the last Muslim power on the Iberian Peninsula, and immediately expelled the Jews, very shortly thereafter required the conversion of remaining Muslims to Catholicism, and compared... And also bankrolled Columbus. Strangely and enough. yes, bankrolled Columbus. Uh, there is, in fact, a legend that comes from the 17th century that uh, that holds that Columbus, in looking for funding, uh, actually, when he couldn't get it from the the Spanish monarchs, uh, went to the Ottoman Sultan of the time, Bayezid II, and uh, and wasn't able to get it. So, I had to go back home and finally scrounged it from someplace, uh, which does uh, indicate and Ottoman awareness. In, By the way, somebody else we've left out of the mix who's barely been mentioned tonight, but he's terribly important for the brief empire that he constructed, is Napoleon. Uh, yes, if I, if I can just go back to the 16th century models, you've got on the one hand a Spanish model that says empire ultimately can only, even in the new world, can only be firmly established on the basis, basis of homogenization. So everybody's going to be Spanish, Everybody's going to mm -hmm. be Christian. Everybody's going to be Catholic, and culturally, you will all be the same. And the Ottoman model is is significantly different. It's tolerant. Uh, it's absorptive. Yeah. Uh, it is founded on an awareness that you really can't coerce that many people, uh, and that you have to be able to comprehend, and golly, tolerate, it, and exploit difference. It's multicultural. Uh, now, coming to the example that you adduced uh, uh, a moment ago, uh, that of Napoleon. Well, you know, Napoleon was perhaps a little bit before his time. Uh, you know, well, what was Napoleon after, uh, apart from personal power and personal glory and 
pursuit of uh, of the the grandeur that motivated him. But what was the what was the justification and the rationale of the Napoleonic spread at the time? Was it to make Frenchmen out of everybody? I don't think so. But it was somehow to bring to bring what exactly to I the rest Michael of the world? Well, none of us are French uh, experts on French history here, but I think. Uh, Napoleon is a slightly different case. This is, of course, the case of personal ambition, not uh, really the, the, the state ideology of some but, sort. But, he could, have, ambition but could he have managed without a myth which captured the imagination right, but of the vast Napoleonic army? Well, he hijacked that revolutionary myth. Exactly. He exactly. hijacked the French Revolution yeah. for his own purposes, mm -hmm. for his own personal That's ambition. the way I, th and I think. Yeah. So th that's why I would set it aside from other larger All empires right. which uh, were built with a long-term goal, so to speak. Then let's look at the British. Well, I, just a moment. I, I mean, some of the trappings of the Napoleonic Empire were, were modeled, it seems to me, after Roman precedents. Also, surely, yeah. And uh, we have him as consul before, before he declares himself emperor. Um, some some say, I've read uh, in some some work that the recent discovery of Pompeii stimulated uh, this uh, uh -huh. interest in revival of of, of Roman, uh, sort of a Roman... Of course, he was also probably uh, strongly impressed by Egypt in his early military invasion of Egypt mm -hmm. before he achieves total power in France. You know, I think he went there, though, for strategic purposes, uh, I think. But it was also for intellectual and ideological purposes. I mm. mean, the, the Rosetta Stone, Stone was discovered as a result of the Napoleonic mm -hmm. invasion. Yeah. But by accident, uh, though, 1798. By accident. By accident, but Napoleon was accompanied by a large sort of, uh, scientific mm. uh, body. And just as Ferdinand and Isabella bankrolled uh, Columbus, Napoleon bankrolled Champollion, who is the, the genius who translated the Rosetta Stone. And he also had uh, folk who knew Arabic perhaps uh, grammatically and systematically, but not terribly idiomatically, who were charged with issuing proclamations in Arabic, mm -hmm. the point of which was to convince the local population that in fact, this was not an invasion, but simply a uh, a restoration. I love to play with counterfactuals. Imagine Napoleon on his Italian campaign, a bright young guy who's been made a brigadier general and off to do some of the work of Napoleon, uh, some of the work of the revolution against their real or perceived enemies. And Napoleon's shot down, it falls off his horse dead. Um, what happens in European history from there on? Well, who can say? Um, but I, I don't. Would there have been another Napoleon? Uh, would there have been a French uh, invasion of all the rest of Europe well, on I, any pretext uh, at all? As a historian, I will not venture into that area. I well, think if I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was going to say, I mean, the, the critical turning point would seem to be somewhere in the second half of the the 18th century, at which at which point. Uh, so the British in their ventures in uh, in India, uh, the French subsequently in their adventures in North Africa and Egypt, uh, finally turn a corner that the Spanish had turned a long time since, uh, whereby they are no longer trying to come to terms with local political cultures and local uh, linguistic 
cultures, uh, but decide that they have to engage in a project of imposition uh, and acculturation. Uh, and precisely why that happens in the latter part of the 18th century, I'm, uh, we perhaps don't have enough time to talk when about When I raise the, the issue of Napoleon and imagine Napoleon shot off his horse in Italy before he becomes the, the, the great Napoleon, what I'm playing with, of course, is the wonderful uh, contrast between two views of history. Mm -hmm. uh, the Johnson, the, uh, uh, I almost said Johnsonian, I don't mean Johnson, I mean uh, uh, the Carlylean view of history, though it stands there long before Carlyle, that history is nothing but the record of the doings of great men, great actors versus a social forces interpretation. And it seems to me that with regard to revolution, with regard to empire, we clearly have a kind of a general social forces uh, interpretation that makes sense and is really given by, uh, I'm, I'm teaching history to historians, which is quite presumptuous, but still, I've always loved the uh, Thucydidean uh, uh, tripartite explanation of war, which is also, I think, an explanation of empire. Thucydides says that all nations essentially and inevitably are forced, and all elites of all nations are forced uh, to be concerned with security maintaining their hold on power, maintaining their territory, worrying about potential enemies. And the best way to handle potential enemies is to kill them uh, or dominate them and make them your slaves. Uh, honor, uh, says Thucydides, also drives war uh -huh. and interest. Uh -huh, interest uh -huh. meaning I want to get as much of, yep. of what is available as possible. Mm -hmm. Isn't that the dynamic of imperial ex expansion generally? Yet it doesn't really fully account for the French uh, empire, brief as it was in Europe, which is very much a product of the the grandiose pretensions and ambitions of a man, a particular n n nameable historical actor. Thucydides extrapolates those motivations from what he takes to be uh, deeply embedded in human nature. Those exactly. are the things that exactly. Yeah, but and that would argue that empire of the old <coughs> variety was essentially a product of human nature in action. Yeah, but uh, what those those qualities in individuals existed long before there was an Athenian empire and mm -hmm. it takes uh, a good amount of stimuli stimulus uh, in various forms and technology. Technology, but I, I think goading to uh, bring yeah. that to some sort of um, more uh, gigantic uh, gigantically ended purpose. Now how does one account I know I'm jumping around a good deal but there's so much fascinating material here. Mm -hmm. How does one account for the British Empire? There's mm -hmm. no single figure like Napoleon who pushes it forward. Uh, they could have been happy on that little, on that happy island. John of Gaunt tells us well, what I, a wonderful I, island I, it is. I think the the critical explanation of the British Empire is commercial interests. Uh huh. Uh, and that's why we have empires that expand for a variety of different interests. Even though you're absolutely right, I think there's something natural about the fact that empires expand. And why? Because they can. Mm -hmm. Like an old... Uh, Climbing the mountain because it's there. But right. they are not necessarily but colonial, and that is one of the... No, they're not. They're distinctive colonial. features about the Spanish ventures and... That, that's right. Uh, and uh, that's right. And colonial is another term that I think maybe we'll discuss later. I hope we have some time yeah. because... Well, it becomes very relevant as you discuss the British Empire. Uh, yes, but what I was going to mention is that there are a number of reasons for which empire expand. And these are ideological, these are geopolitical and strategic, these are commercial. 
uh, the, in economic um, and d at different times, different empires expand, expand for a different combination of those reasons. And I think if we to simplify, I think the British Empire, of course, was driven mostly by commercial interests. And what, mm -hmm. That's what defines, I think, the, uh, the modern empire. The Spanish Empire, the British Empire, the French were driven by that. If we compare with Russia, Russia was driven by completely different reasons all the way until the 18, late 18, early 19th century. What name do you give to those reasons? I would say geopolitical, strategic, uh, uh, military. That's Thucydidean. We defend ourselves by capturing the territory from which threat might reach us. Or we construe later this as defense because yeah. we, we believe that we're still on defensive while well, in fact we're not. What about the inheriting uh, uh, version of the Russian Empire? That is, the revolution happens, which we're not accounting for right now. Though well, you, yeah, one easy way to account for it is that it is a consequence of the decline and the decay of the classic Russian imperial system. But then the Soviets are also after a while on the make with regard to taking over portions of Eastern Europe, both before uh, or consolidating the, the various nations that the Tsarist regime had some hold over, consolidating them as republics within the Soviet Union, and then, of course, after the war, spreading their control throughout Eastern Europe more tightly than they had heretofore exercised. What, what motivates, if we want to lay this on a man and associate a name with the process, what motivates Stalin in this regard? Well, I think uh, a combination, I would say, of geopolitical and ideological reasons. Of course, not com commercial communism. Uh, no, too much. Le well, of course, there are commercial reasons for just to, to some extent, but they are not mm -hmm. the primary reasons, I would say. Uh, but ideology, communism, the spread of socialism, bringing socialism, <laughs> the ideas of socialism to other peoples. But the Soviets are onto something very different. In some ways, a uh, uh, I would probably say unique uh, construction of an empire, if we agree that the Soviet Union is an empire, because one could argue about that. They're, they're building in, in the 1920s what um, some referred as the Empire of Nations. There's a good new book called uh, uh, The Empire of Nations, or another good book called it The Affirmative Action Empire, because the Soviets actually had the affirmative action, in our terms, long before it appeared in the United States. Uh, and basically, they construct an empire by um, uh, um, giving some uh, autonomies or creating a federal structure was uh, giving, uh, giving uh, well, I, I'm looking for a term, it's not sovereignty, but let's say some uh, um, uh, autonomy within the Soviet Union to the 15 republics. All of them are based on the principle of ethnicity. Within these republics, there are other autonomous republics, mm -hmm. uh, which are also based on the principle of ethnicity. So some would say now from the vantage point of our times that the Soviet Union was doomed from the very beginning because it began by doing this. It was encouraging and building a uh, divisive forces that will later claim its own. Well, state. others would argue it was doomed from the beginning for economic reasons, that for a central command things. economy is intrinsically dysfunctional. And those will be right as well. Yeah. Or even more so, because at least I happen to believe that that is more significant reason than the eventual uh, collapse of the Soviet Union. The one the left over that requires some sort of commentary, if not explanation, is the Nazi Empire. That brief, dreadful period 
in modern European history. One remembers that um, in um, one of their songs, uh, I don't think it's the Horst Wessel lead, but in one of their other uh, patriotic songs, they sing, Heute gehört uns Deutschland, morgen die ganze Welt. Today Germany belongs to us. Uh, tomorrow, the whole world. The, the vision was not merely to capture Eastern Europe and populate it after you killed a lot of Slavs and all the Jews. The vision was ultimately to take over the whole world. Or was that just propagandistic talk of, that no one took seriously in Berlin? Well, I, I think that certainly that there was something to be exploited there that there wasn't elsewhere, the, the myth of the master race and uh, that mm -hmm. kind of uh, uh, stuff fed to the population, seemed to be eager to accept it. Um, and the connection of that with um, some sort of civilizing mission. Again. Uh, but they were self-convinced, and I, I don't think... Uh, and a Darwinian mission, pseudo-Darwinian mission. No. Prune the human stock and get rid of all the... The bad stuff. Well, I think in this sense, actually, I I, I think not, the Nazi Empire is a separate case, which is outside of the empires we consider, because mm. the the major premise of it was a racial mm -hmm. premise, the racial base. Uh, so there was no, you know, attempt either to integrate or to uh, use in some other ways the local populations, except for maybe slave labor and so on. Uh, this was a, uh, a clearly a racial uh, adventure, and and I think it sort of it doesn't fit into any. Well, that is that is the part of it that is very much uh, that very much belongs to the 20th century. The part the the one part that doesn't necessarily belong exclusively to the 20th century is its universalism and uh, and messianism, uh, which is very much a part of of old imperialisms processed through uh, medieval Christianity, uh, that is the legend of Rome and the legend of Alexander, uh, processed through medieval Christianity and through, through Islamdom. Uh, but in the, in, in the Nazi case, I, I would simply wish to add that there is uh, that, that dimension of both universality and finality that is the indication that end time and the resolution of history is here if in even in this case it entails uh, the victory of a single ethnicity which after all is primarily a 19th and 20th century category uh, the the residue from earlier imperial ventures in Europe uh, resides in its uh, in its universality and in its messiness. So, in a way, you could look at Nazism as the reductio ad extremis of imperialist thought and imperialist style. Well, it is the Fourth Empire, right? Yes, yeah, the Fourth Reich, mm -hmm. which is the last the one, the Third Reich. The third, the third, the third Reich, the third Reich, and the fourth empire, in the, the fourth empire. Yeah. Uh, um, I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> it's all right. It's time for me. Uh, to, this is fascinating stuff, and I've got more questions. But it is time for me to invite telephone calls. We're opening the lines right now. Uh, your questions in response to the discussion you've heard, and for that matter, other questions that I haven't been bright enough to think of. 
but that you take to be relevant to this general discussion, which is about uh, the phenomenon of empire. One thing we haven't stressed enough is that empires kill more or less millions of people one way or another. Um, 5917200 is our number. 5917200. If you are listening to us on the Internet anyplace else in the world, including formerly imperial territory, whether uh, in the former Soviet Union or, for that matter, um, uh, in uh, any portion of Europe that was taken over by the Nazis, and you want, or, for that matter, on the mainland of China. Uh, we are heard in all of those places via the Internet. And the Japanese Empire, of which we said nothing, had strong ambitions uh, in the Pacific, did it not? 5917200. If you are, I was about to say, listening to us on the Internet at some greater distance, you uh, might best want to reach us via email. The email address, extension720 at tribune.com. Extension720 at tribune, T-R-I-B-U-N-E dot com. Or by phone, again, 591-7200. I see the lines are filling up, but one or two spaces are still available at 591-7200. I think the great and necessary question at this point is, is empire still possible? <coughs> do, we, do, do empires exist in the world today? Might they yet rise again, or have we been through historical change that is irreversible. Well, again, I would defer to my colleagues, but just one word. Uh, it seems to me that in the 19th, 20th, and 21st century, the, uh, the idea, the, uh, the conception of empire is uh, a negative now, uh, that uh, criticism is attaches automatically to anything that smacks of that, whether it's uh, economic, mm -hmm or military or otherwise. Um, and one of the presentations of that in popular culture we were talking about, and I hope this is, uh, we're, I'm still keeping a, a level here of um, a, a sort of scholarly approach to this, is, is, is in popular culture the use of, of the, the metaphor for the evil force that is to be defeated in these Star Wars Reagan epics. speaks of uh, the Soviet Union as yeah. the evil empire. Yeah, yeah. But it's a, it's a negative. And our our enemies in the world speak of the American Empire. Yeah. But but it seems to imply that it's to be resisted, and? universally as well. Uh, I fear that it is not necessarily uh, received as something that is is necessarily to be resisted. I mean, I, certainly in 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 public parlance, uh, I would agree that that is so. But but having myself. Uh, grown up in diplomatic environments, in largely in the Middle East, uh, uh, in the 1950s and 1960s, it was then and remains striking to me uh, how, with what alacrity, uh, the representatives of the United States moved into those imperial spaces that were being vacated in the 50s and 60s. Uh, by the French and the British in particular. Move in in what sense? Uh, well, m certainly moving in culturally, uh, but more, uh, that is, people were simply taking a certain amount of delight in, uh, in being able to take over the, the old British sporting club and go to the swimming pool where no n natives were uh, allowed to uh, 
uh, to join, or only laterally the right sorts of natives were uh, were allowed to join. But more more significantly, I think, uh, moving into positions of assumed influence and dominance. Name some places where the, this happens uh, in modern history. Well, uh, much of the Arab Middle East, uh, certainly. Uh, Indochina, probably? Certainly Indochina. Uh, latterly, in the 1990s, uh, in a, uh, a rather different guise, I would say, in the, uh, the former Soviet republics. Uh, There's a lot of American presence. There's Co certainly a lot of American presence. Commercial presence, is it? a great deal, I think, of uh, uh, glorying in American presence and dominance and in the, the absence of necessity to come to terms with a locality. Really? Now, Michael is Ukrainian by background. Uh, are the Americans in Kiev at the moment? And if so, how do they function? Oh, Americans, of course, are very popular in uh, um, in Ukraine because uh, uh, you probably heard of all these recent events. Was gas that occurred between Russia and Ukraine? That was uh, another consistent sort mm -hmm. of interference, uh, trying to force Ukrainians to uh, do what what Moscow wants yeah, them to. Yeah, and we put Putin down on that. Uh, we means what United States? The United States uh, brought pressure on them. Yes, uh, yes. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, so Americans are the ones who are supporting Ukraine in this and to a lesser extent the European Union and so on. But uh, back to your question, I think 20th century proves that empires, of course, collapsed. After World War I, we see the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian and the Ottoman empires and the Russian empire, of course. And after World War II, we'll see the collapse of the British and the French empires. And, and the Japanese? The Japanese. And if we think of the Soviet Union as empire, then we can, of course, can... Uh, consider 1991 as a collapse of the Soviet Empire, which mm -hmm. I would argue it is. Sure. Uh, and if you look at the recent trends, you see, uh, if mm -hmm. if anything, more of the um, uh, ethnic and even regional voices coming up from countries that you, from our point of view, would be fairly homogeneous. But there is a even uh, re regions want to be to have more independence, more autonomy, or uh, even try to secede in some extreme cases. Uh, and I'm talking even about Western Europe, if we look at Belgium or even Germany uh, and so on. You know, something uh, occurs so to me along those lines. Two uh, of our allies were much uh, dismembered by the war, Britain and France, to the extent that there was a free French movement, and then it took over national power in France. And both had empires, which they rapidly uh, disestablished or decomposed after the war, more or less voluntarily. Some resistance in France by the military in uh, North Africa, in, mm -hmm. uh, in Algiers. But you remember de Gaulle on the balcony in Algiers, where he tells the cheering crowd of colons, of Frenchmen, uh, who uh, want to stay in France. Uh, he tells them, je vous ai entendu, I have understood you. And they cheer and cheer, but they haven't understood him. <laughs> <laughs> His plan is to go back to Paris and essentially to... Uh, give North Africa its freedoms. Well, at that time, I think he didn't have that plan. Well, he developed it pretty soon thereafter. <laughs> uh, and Britain, of course, with the Dominion system, keeps the fiction going that I guess the Queen is still on. Uh, is she still on the Indian staff? She's still on the con the Canadian staff. 
and on the Australian staff, mm -hmm. I know. But there is no British Empire, but there still is a British Commonwealth. Commonwealth. So there's a fiction uh, of something persisting. Uh, but the age of empire, in a way, seems to be essentially finished. Well, okay, I'll, I'll be the one to post this. Is there an American empire? That's the basic question, I guess, that haunts this latter part of our conversation. Yeah. I would say there isn't. There's an American commercial dominance and presence shortly to run into very strong competition from China. Well, I, th I think it was Harold Pinter who was uh, ah, yes. uh, blasting the United States in, his, in, Nobel in his Nobel speech. And I think one of his points was that uh, Americans are the most mm. clever imperialist ever because they do the same things but in a, such a clever way that it's virtually invisible or not perceived <coughs> so and so on. Do you think, uh, Michael? I, it I do disagree with that. Uh -huh. I do, I'm more inclined to share your view, Milt. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I see where different opinions emerge. Well, let's collect Cornell's opinion. <laughs> uh, no, I would own... <coughs> no, I, I, I fear that there are people sort of concerned with uh, projecting a mil American military power as well as American uh, economic power mm -hmm. uh, in, in very sort of aggressive and ostentatious ways who really do believe in empire and I would only wish that uh, they had a rather more subtle understanding of, uh, of what empire has historically been and what has made historically successful uh, empires. Uh, and I, I, I say that because I, to go, to, to agree with what uh, a number of you have said, I, I, I don't think that there really is an effective strategy of empire here, except through coercion. And you know, if one is an historian of empire, one knows that pure coercion doesn't work. Certainly, it doesn't work in uh, in any very. Long and you can't time. do much coercion in the name of America and have America let you get away with it. Well, well that's right. Uh, the, the, I was listening very interestedly to my colleagues and you, Melt, uh, about this, and it seems as if although America and its leaders and its people might engage in imperialistic uh, ventures, uh, they, not, they they will resist calling it that. Now, gentlemen, here's the plan. Uh, it's time to go to the phones. It's more than time. Five nine one seven two double zero is the number for email extension seven twenty at tribune dot com. And uh, for those who are waiting on the phones, we'll get to you almost instantly. Similarly, we'll read some of the email. We now have a few slots available on the phone bank. Again, if you've been trying to reach us, make another quick try at five nine one seventy two hundred. On to those calls directly after this. Five nine one seven two double zero is the number. And we go to the first caller. You are on the air, but I think we've already been responding to the question you're about to ask. Uh, you have been, and thank you very much, and uh, good evening to the panel. Uh, DePaul University is going to be running a multi-quarter program called mm -hmm. Confronting Empire. When I heard it was uh, the name, I figured it was either the British Empire or something. And they are referring to the American Empire mm -hmm. as they see it. But my question, I'll uh, slightly adjust because it was a second part, and that is it appears that a lot of people, at least in terms of this particular program, uh, use the word globalization and empire uh, almost interchangeably. And I wonder if the panel believes that you could consider uh, modern globalization as a form of empire. An, a good question. Let's get some good answers. Uh, 
Well, I don't think so, no. Um, I think globalization is, is a it's a completely different process. It's a, um, well, you know, it's hard to define it probably, or at least there could be different definitions of it. But essentially, it's the spread of um, Western uh, institutions, whether it is a commercial or political, uh, throughout the world. Uh, globalization comes not from China or from uh, India or some other place, but it comes from sort of Western uh, uh, Western part of the world. And I don't want to, to diminish the complexity of it because, of course, it feeds on other cultures and um, and so on. But it but I think basically what it is, I believe. So empire yeah. involves some political structure, which globalization process really doesn't have. Yeah, see, I had I had the same understanding, I, but I'm not in that particular field, so I thought that maybe I was missing something. If I may ask one quick uh, follow-up, you mentioned that Pinter was one who who argued about the United States almost as an empire. Is there a particular academic philosophy that would would come to the conclusion that the U.S. is empire? Sure, it is. sure there is. It's called Marxism, uh, or Marxism manqué, uh, uh, of which we have large representation in uh, the American university system, yeah, um, including DePaul among its younger faculty. I'm, I'm, yeah, unfortunately, you're correct. Thank uh, you very much, Milton. That <laughs> no, that's your best Marxism. <laughs> you have a right to respond. No, no, no. I, I uh, you know, it's not just Marxism. I think there are, there are probably people from the left, of course, that will be arguing this, but it's, uh, it's more complex than just Marxism. Um, but it's still on the mm. subject, I think, today. In the, would you agree with me, uh, in the American Academy, um, that there is a long, uh, there is a strong representation of that view of America which spells America with a K, and which is intrinsically anti-capitalist and anti-American, and whose basic theme is that we are colonial, though we're disguised colonial, and we are raping the world, though we do so supposedly in the name of larger ideals. Don't you get a lot of that? as represented in the social disciplines and even in the humanities these days in the American universities. Not necessarily the majority opinion, but much representation. Well, I, 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 I don't notice it particularly more in, in, the, in the academic environment uh, more than, than elsewhere. I mean, there, there is that view, and, and one does see it uh, talked about, uh, or hear it talked about, see it printed about. That kind of thing, um, but I think there's always going to be that, isn't there? Uh, 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 opposition or, or 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 those who become sort of uh, consciences and gadflies who may remind us about uh, things that we uh, should think about well, in the course of nations. There's uh, another modern historical hypothesis dealing with a smaller issue, mm. uh, strongly argued by a number of people who've done significant books. The best of them was published some ten years ago. Roger Kimball's Tenured Radicals who argues that uh, the radicals of the late 60s, early 70s, uh, who then went back to school, not all of them did, but many did, got their doctorates, entered into the academic world, and the development of radical caucuses, so-called, within the major disciplines, the humanities and social science disciplines, and their continued prominence and rise in the academic system so that they became chairman, dean, let's, deans, and what have you, has something to do with a transformation of the American higher education curriculum. And it has been pushed in radical directions in some of the courses. I'm sure that Cornell disagrees with, with me. I want to well, hear why. No, I don't disagree with you. I suppose I would rather have to plead guilty. 
Uh, ah, well, <laughs> okay. Come to the microphone and plead guilty. No, uh, uh, as to your orthography, we can we can talk about that later. <laughs> K's or C's, uh, uh, Milt. But I, I, for those of us certainly who began a university education in the late 1960s, as I did, mm-hmm. uh, and again, in my own case, I. I grew up outside of this country, right? You were uh, a diplomatic child, so to speak. Well, I was a diplomatic child, but I also uh, went to schools that were populated largely by people who were uh, not denizens of mm-hmm. a particular neighborhood of uh, the United States of America, who saw the world somewhat differently, uh, who were of necessity put into contact with more cultures, more societies, uh, more sort of exhibitions of uh, of alienness, if you will, than would you know was ever certainly the the case normally for people of my parents' generation or for your generation, uh, except for the fact that people of my parents' generation and your generation experienced the Second World War. Uh, so what I, I, I suppose I'm trying I'm 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 trying to suggest is that what you are terming radicalism that then became thirty years later part of an academic mainstream uh, can rather be construed as an awakening to a wider world. Mm. Whether in the United in the United States, whether you can throw it the, in the 1960s. And whether you can throw it the one way or the other, you do agree with me. I, I gather that in American academic life these days, we do have that as a strong trend. Uh, and it was it was not so 30 or 40 years ago. Yes, I I would concur with that, and I would uh, I would perhaps close by uh, by saying that when I was a student of things Middle Eastern and Islamic and first a student of things Middle Eastern and Islamic in the late 1960s, it was, it was quite clear that you did not, uh, that rather institutions of higher learning did not allow natives of the area to have a voice. Mm-hmm. Right? And one of the things that has changed in the 30-odd years in the interim is that you know, we now do have professors of Middle Eastern and Islamic history with Middle Eastern surnames, and not all of them are male. And that is not, I think, such a, a terrible uh, transformation. And they do regularly assign Edward Said's Orientalism as a... Uh, well, some of us actually critique uh, Edward Said's Orientalism, as I was doing yesterday in my uh-huh. own class in the Renaissance, called the Renaissance East and West, uh-huh. which looks at this sort of monument of, uh, of, 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 of Western civilization in the early modern period as a phenomenon that is not exclusively Western, mm-hmm. but rather one that is more global. Uh, Truly fascinating. Um, and I wish we could do more with it. But here's a question I think that is uh, for you, as a matter of fact, Cornell. Let me go to it quickly. 591-7200. Hello, you're on the air. Good evening. How are you? Yes, sir. Okay, very quickly. Um, the two questions I have, and of course it evolves around Constantine's uh, famous vision. Um, that's where he claimed with his Roman troops he saw the hand of Christ and, and, and the cross conquer with this, and they convert to Christianity. 
and they adopt the Kai Lo on on a symbol. What is it Latin? In hoc signe vincus. Yes, and but they, and they take the Greek actually. They don't take the Latin. They take Kai Lo as a symbol. Um, that's what he always claimed. That's what his historian claimed, and they carried the lantern. I can't think of the name of the great American uh, historian who does still talk about it, but if you look at most history books from an amateur historian, they don't talk about it at all. It, it's like it never happened. Um, uh, the, this is a question for both um, uh, Cornell Fleischer and well, Brian Lavelle. Right, and, and Let's pick up build, on it, sir. Let's pick up on it. Go, Brian. I don't know what the question is. Well, the question is why we don't get much elaboration of this in history. Well, because it, it seems to have been something that was claimed after the fact, for a start, um, and it's something that uh, was uh, almost certainly politically expedient for uh, Constantine to have claimed. Uh, don't forget that he was fighting against the champion of the pagans, and so it would be natural to make himself the religious, political every antithesis to to his to his enemy and the christians at the time were were were, were pretty powerful it was a politically astute move so i think i think historians distrust it uh as a propagandistic um sort of um add-on to um make the battle's outcome even more mythically pleasing than it would be otherwise but what uh, becomes of great interest also of course we've made mention of it but didn't give it much attention is the shift of Rome to the east and the rise of Byzantium, which can be called a great civilization that also lasted for many centuries and still persists. Well, indeed, and I think that, that Michael might be the better person to, to respond to this than, than myself. I, would, I, would, I will only say that in uh, the curricula that we have developed, certainly in this country and largely in, West, in Western Europe, uh, sort of non-Latin Christendom uh, is written out nearly as completely as uh, as is Islam in the history of uh, of late antiquity and uh, and the Middle Ages and uh, and and so sort of the the centrality of Byzantium and of the Eastern uh, Eastern Roman Empire to the civilizational experience is uh, uh, is virtually ignored. Michael, uh, I just have to agree, and uh, not much to add. Let me um, read this to you: <clears throat> an email. I noticed that Tsar Yeltsin and Tsar Putin resurrected many of the emblems of Imperial Russia. The double-headed eagle, for example, is the new national emblem of Russia. The old Imperial flag has been returned as well. Are these old imperial emblems being used to extract a new sense of Russian greatness from the ashes of the Soviet Empire? More to the point, are these throwbacks to imperial times having any patriotic effect on today's Russian society? Do the Russian people crave empire? Or are old imperial problems, Chechnya, etc., steering them away from any new imperial ambitions? Uh, that's a good question, and uh, I think the answer will be that there is a strong rise of what uh, many refer as new Russian imperialism. Uh, I think this this uh, incident was uh, Russian company Gazprom, which is uh, half owned by the Russian government. Uh, it's clear that the company itself is a tool in the hands of the Kremlin of the government. Uh, it could not do all of this by itself. Uh, 
Putin's personal interference in the elections in Ukraine before this so-called Orange Revolution, which followed it. Um, uh, no, there's a clear, particularly from Putin government, it was not so under Yeltsin, but um, under Putin government we see a clear uh, sort of neo-imperialist trend. Um, the symbols were adopted long time ago, that is, relatively long ago, uh, shortly after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, one of the most important challenges that Russia faced shortly after 1991 was to uh, find its own new identity. What was Russia? After all, there are, there are millions of Muslims who live inside Russia. There are uh, hundreds still of different ethnic groups who speak different languages. Russians are still the majority. Um, it's, it was a very traumatic experience. Yes, it was for, for the British to when the British Empire collapsed. Uh, some of our older generation, more conservative British, still kind of uh, cherish the ideas of the mm -hmm. British Empire. So there is uh, a very strong and very worrisome uh, trend in, in Russia under Putin uh, towards sort of attempt to restore uh, the Russian Empire, seeking again the greatness of it. And, and is, is that also a reaction to restiveness at the periphery? Aren't there, uh, aren't many of the Muslim areas former Soviet republics in the south uh, more prone to want to break away. Well, As Chechnya, of course, is the prime example. Yeah. It's, it's, I think without Chechnya, we would have seen the same, the same uh, result. Uh, but Chechnya certainly makes it, uh, makes it more visible. Um, Chechnya, of course, is a great you know, tragedy and, and, and a, uh, a huge blood stain on, on, on Russia mm -hmm. at this point. Um, so I think even without it, we would have seen the same tendency trying to uh, restore. As Putin said himself, the collapse of the Soviet Union, he said, I quote, is the greatest geopolitical tragedy of the 20th century. And that statement alone says it all. W would anybody here agree with that, with Putin's statement? Well, I, I quote it, uh, of course, critically in the sense that uh, he would like to restore the Soviet Union. He, he would, would yes. Not, yes, he would not like to uh, to see what have ha what happened, uh, and um, um, uh, you know, quite clearly, Russia is is uh, Russia has always been um, uh, difficult because it never belonged either to the west or mm -hmm. to the east. It's always in between. It's a it's a curious uh, amalgam of both, and so. For shortly after the collapse of the Soviet Union, we uh, people thought that it's certain, finally Russia will be democratic. Finally, Russia right. will join the uh, Europe. Uh, and we were, we were reassured by one favored young man that um, uh, it represented the end of history. Well, that everything is, would be living at the sunlit uplands well, from here on. Yeah, and, th and that yeah. is a remarkable nonsense, of course. Wasn't it there? Uh, here's another question that comes by email, uh, this one from Rochester, New York, and this, is, uh, this goes necessarily to Brian Lavelle. Uh, isn't the real cause of the collapse of the Roman Empire the inclusion of defeated barbarian tribes into the Roman legions and the subsequent overthrowing of Caesars and the poor discipline of the army? That's certainly out there as a as a theory, but but it's it's too simplistic because um, there were many elements that that contributed to the inclusion of uh, barbarian so-called barbarian elements in the Roman army. 
uh, one of which uh, seems to have been severe depopulation that occurred around the second and third centuries, perhaps due to plague, perhaps due to um, um, low birth rates, um, uh, many factors that sort of ushered in the need for um, uh, some who were externals to become defenders of the internal against other externals. So um, I think that's that's too. Um, there's no real. There's no one single cause, but a, a multiplicity of causes. I think wasn't wasn't much of this there. foreseen and and uh, predicted in a warning way by a Roman, though uh, in fact Greek by origin, but a significant in Rome, a historian Polybius. Didn't Polybius essentially deal with the inevitable decline of empires? Yeah, Polybius is a bit of a sore loser, though, I think. And uh, I, I think he wanted to see the... He was a Greek who wanted Rome before. That's exactly right. I mean, he'd, he'd seen some bad things go on in Greece yeah. in his time. And, of course, he became uh, a friend of, of Roman elite. Um, uh, so I, I think he was, he was looking uh, sort of wishfully at the possibility rather more than... Uh, prognosticating the end of the the empire, which was uh, something that 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 carried on even when it had really no uh, practical basis for carrying on uh, the uh, the momentum of the idea of it. Uh, we're talking about the greatness. Mikhail was talking about the greatness of of the former Soviet Union. The idea of the greatness of Rome is one that persists today. Somehow fascinating to uh, to people. So I mean, it, its own volition kept it going long after it had. Sort of grounds for, uh, for uh, practical grounds for carrying on. We are overdue for a commercial break. Let's go instantly to that, and then we shall return. Our guests tonight are all very active scholars. That being so, they do books as well as articles in the professional referee journals. Uh, let's quickly review. Um, I know you've all done more than one book, but what are you proudest of, and what would you like to recommend to general readership? Brian Lavelle. Well, unfortunately, the the book that I have is not on the the subject. It's off the subject of, That's of right. tonight. Uh, it's uh, a book that I come out this year uh, called Fame, Money, and Power. That's a good title. And it's uh, about the run-up to the genesis of democracy at Athens in the 5th century. So if you're interested in that, what a great read this is. Fame, Money, and Power. And well, Michael Kozarkovsky. Fortunately, my book exactly on the subject we're discussing, and that is, it's mm -hmm. called... Russia's Step Frontier, The Making of a Colonial Empire. And it's available in paperback and published by Indiana University Press. And um, uh, uh, it's about Russia and its expansion, particularly mm -hmm. in the southern Ottoman uh, uh, borderlands. And Cornell Fletcher. Uh, well, m most proximately, I have uh, coming out uh, a book called A Mediterranean Apocalypse, subtitle uh, Empire and Prophecy. 1453 to 1550 that will be published in the summer, I hope, by University of California Press. You guys are good at titles. Mediterranean Apocalypse is a, a grabber. Uh, let's take another quick phone call. One uh, five nine one seventy two hundred. You are on the air. Good evening. Hello. Yes. Yes. Um, I was wondering. You said that the United States really didn't constitute an empire, but the uh, couldn't you argue that the development of the United States is doesn't that constitute the development of an empire more on a Jeffersonian model than a Napoleonic uh, model in that the states were uh, eventually settled and became entities that uh, that had ties to the federal government and became eventually became part of the federal government? Oh, I thought you were going to mention, I thought you were going to hang that on conquest of native peoples. 
no, which well, surely was also involved. Well, there weren't a lot. There weren't a lot of them, but the, the, obviously there was an issue. But I mean, through you know, encouraging immigration, the the Lewis and Clark exploration, and I, uh, well, let's let's per, let's pursue that. Time is very short, war. sir. Let's pursue that as quickly as we possibly can. Uh, resolved. Uh, the development of America is a an instance of empire building. Agreed or disagreed, and why? Well, uh, yeah, I agree. I um, it just. Um, uh, yes, I, th I. You know, we are not the best probably to comment on American history here, but but from li little that I know, I th I would agree that uh, the 19th century American expansion could be called an imperial expansion on the continent. Well, we are certainly the product of empire as well as the. In the 19th century, I agree with you, Michael. The propagators of empire. Brian Lavelle. I I make a third in that. You hang with those guys. I hang with those guys. Yeah, why not? Uh, we have only a few minutes left. Um, what important questions should I have asked tonight that I did not ask? Oh, I think we've covered the bases. It, it would be, um, I think, good for uh, us to leave here or and your listeners to, to leave the program thinking about uh, America and its w whether or not it's an empire and what that means, if indeed one concludes that it is. And it would be good, would it not, as well, to leave with the uh, sense that empire, though it has been inevitable in human experience and in human history, was not necessarily, uh, is not necessarily a model that one wants to carry to eternity. No, I, I think not. And with that, I will thank our three guests and quickly identify them again. They have been Cornell Flesher, Professor of History at the University of Chicago, Michael Kodarkovsky, Professor of History at Loyola University, Brian Lavelle, Professor uh, of Classics at Loyola University.